And so let us hear God's word from Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, uh, there are three or four, depending on how you count it, uh, doctrines that are are just really hard for us to wrap our minds around and understand. And the first of these, um, not in any particular order here, but uh, would be the incarnation, that Jesus is both fully man without sin and fully God. The doctrine of the Trinity, of course, would be another one, that there are three persons, as we say, and one God, and all are fully God. And then thirdly, we have the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How does that fit together? Are we just robots? Do we have a free will? You know, these kind of questions. And some will separate this, some will put this last one with what we I just mentioned, and that is the doctrine of inspiration. The Bible is God's word, but it is also man's word. So as as we think of these doctrines, they are in many ways beyond our comprehension, hard for us to wrap our minds around, and at the very least, we could point to two of them here in Psalm 110, and that is the incarnation and the Trinity. We could even possibly make connections to God's sovereignty and even inspiration. But uh, because of these things, it adds to the challenge of our understanding here in Psalm 110. Now, we have looked at possibly the most significant psalm of all the psalms here for the last few weeks and again here today. And it is so significant for two key reasons. First of all, the New Testament refers to it over and over again. We've looked at about 25 different places, and last week we looked at a whole chapter in Hebrews 7 that addressed verse 4, and then portions of two other chapters. And then secondly, this is so significant because it teaches us about Christ, about his person, and about his work, that he is God and man, that he is king and priest. And so because of who he is, therefore what he has done has been accomplished, He is without sin. He has brought his own blood. He has died an atoning death, risen again. He lives forever. He rules over all, ascended to God's right hand, and so forth. And so without these things, who he is and what he has done, of course, we'd still be in our sins. So because of the the significance of what Psalm 110 is addressing, um, as well as the importance in the New Testament, uh, of course, we have not rushed through this. 
We have also seen that these ideas are somewhat challenging to comprehend, not just as I began, but even in this way. When Jesus asked the religious leaders the question about Psalm 110, they didn't know how to answer. And you can understand why in some ways. Last week we saw in Hebrews 5 verse 11 that the author said that these things are hard to explain. The incarnation itself is hard to explain. And then add to that that this is typological. You know, direct verbal prophecy is pretty straightforward for us. Right? Cyrus would be raised up and bring Israel back to the promised land. Or the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You know, these are things that are straightforward. But when it comes to typology... It is harder for us to understand. And so we have spent time trying to see how this psalm would have been uh, relevant in the day that David wrote it. That it was fulfilled initially in Solomon and possibly even in Zadok in some ways. We also have to look at how it was relevant for the people of Israel after the exile. And so roughly 500 years later, and so, as I've said several times, Psalm 110 is in book five. It's not in book two that you might expect it to be. And it's because of the application then. And then, of course, after we've tried to understand those things, we then turn to the New Testament and see how these ideas are fulfilled in Christ. And because that's the easier task, that's what many people do and don't even talk about some of these other things. But even as we focus on Christ, there are changes. The priesthood changed. The temple changed. Israel changed. A number of things changed. They're different now. They retain the essential realities, but there are changes nonetheless. And so as you put all these things together, hey, this is a challenging psalm. And we could easily spend months, even years, developing each one of these points. Hopefully I've given you sufficient uh, information, some dots, if you will, that you can connect these different ideas. Even though we've spent, all together, including today, roughly about three hours talking about it. We could spend three years easily. Okay. Well, as we come now to verses 5 to 7, there are some more challenging questions here for us. And once again, we'll just look at it very briefly today. If you take your hand out and you look on the back on your outline, uh, have the different ones there for you. Again, we have the two key utterances in verse 1 and verse 4. And now we come to verses 5 to 7. And if you look at the, the fourth and fifth one, you see how it's set apart. Even the last one there, you can see how it's set apart in that way. Um, we've been looking at some of the names and we'll see that again today. The difference between Adoni, my master, and Adonai, my lord. And then the pronouns that go with that. So, let's then look. Verse 5. Let's start with the first line. My lord is in front of your right hand. Hey, note the to be verb is assumed here, and that certainly makes sense to include that. Now, note... The difference. Here in verse 5, the Hebrew is Adonai. Back in verse 1, it is Adoni. And the difference is, as I indicated in verse 1, that Adonai, almost every single time we see it in the Old Testament, refers to God himself. There are a few exceptions, but very few. 
Of the 775 times this word is used, at least 200 of them are Adonai, and they refer to God, except these few times. So we would expect that to be the case here in verse 5. Whereas in verse 1, Adoni, my Lord, or master, you could say, that almost always refers to a human master. And the only few exceptions that we have refer to an angel. And so we have what may appear to be two different people, Adoni and Adonai, my master and now my Lord and God. Well, as we've seen in verse 1, initially, clearly, this refers to Solomon. I think it clearly does. But it points ultimately to Christ. Well, now, here we have Adonai. How does that refer to Solomon? Does it? Then you have the pronouns. And these two raise questions. In verses 1 to 3, the you and yours, that naturally refers back to the master, to Adonai. But what about verse 4? You are a priest. Does that refer back to the master or is it somebody different? The he and his in verse 4 clearly refers to Yahweh. But what now about the he and his in verses 5 to 7? Who does that refer to? Many questions. And not surprisingly, many different positions. Let me boil it down here in this way. In verse 1, it says there, sit at my right hand. That is God speaking, okay, to this master. Yahweh is speaking to the master, sit at my right hand. So now here in verse 5, my Lord is in front of your right hand. It sounds like we should put this together, right? And that this should guide us in our understanding as to who we're talking about. So it sounds like then that Adonai and Adoni go together, Because your right hand and my right hand seem to go together. The difference, of course, is God is speaking in verse 1. Here now in verse 5, David is speaking about God, speaking to him. And so it seems to give us this direction. I'm not going to get into all the different views, but this seems to be the right direction. This is uh, a, a common view, but certainly not the only one. And so notice then, this would imply that this master, this Lord, is in front of the Father's right hand. And, okay, we can say Solomon, certainly with verse 1, but what about this one? Since we know it ultimately points us to Christ, we then can definitely say that Christ is in front of the Father's right hand. But you notice then, even here in Psalm 110, we are left with this idea, um, it must be something greater than Solomon. Okay, verse 1, we can see that with Solomon, but how does this really point to Solomon? How can he be Adonai? Adonai, yes, my master, but how can he be God? That doesn't fit. There must be something greater. So even in Psalm 110 itself, we are left with this idea that there's something beyond the immediate application of David's words with Solomon. And of course, when we come to the New Testament, that becomes abundantly clear. And if we are right then in our understanding here, then all the he and his pronouns in verses 5 to 7 would refer to Adonai, meaning 
ultimately Christ. Okay. So when Jesus asked his question to the religious leaders and they didn't know how to answer, you can understand why. This is challenging. It isn't just that they were out to get Jesus. This is challenging. Okay. And so David then is saying these things, and yet, remember, this is Psalm 110. It's in book 5. And so when Ezra and the rest of the people put the Psalms together, they put this one here, not right before Psalm 72 or something like that. They put it here. And that's because they had now just experienced the failure of the Davidic line. They had just lived through the failure of the monarchy. And the hint that David said there's something more than Solomon here now becomes very clear to them. It can't really refer to David. It can't really refer to Solomon. It must refer to something more. And so Zechariah and Haggai, Zerubbabel and Joshua, Nehemiah and the rest, now here after the exile are looking at Psalm 110 and seeing more clearly there is something greater that we must look for. And of course, as we come to the New Testament, that becomes very plain. And we've seen these roughly 25 places where it quotes from Psalm 110. All right, now, the connection then with verse 1 and verse 5, my master and my Lord, my God here, um, tells us something that we already talked about in verse 1, and that is that David's son is also David's master. Remember, remember what Jesus said. Okay? And so in other words, the Messiah, the son of David, is a human, but he is also God, the son of God. So there's the incarnation, that challenge. And notice how verse 1 and verse 5 also points in that direction. But we also then see a hint of the Trinity my Lord is in front of your right hand. Those are two different people, right? There are two persons of the Trinity described here. Hinted at, yes, but nevertheless, do you see the hint at the Trinity? Okay, My Lord has to be in front of the Father's right hand. You see the difference. Okay. So the hints that we have in the Old Testament are actually several, and here's one of them. And so as we turn to the New Testament, then we see it more clearly. So let's do that here briefly. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll look here at, uh, first of all, a couple passages we already have looked at. Matthew 26, this is when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, and beginning in verse 63, the high priest then questions him. He puts him under oath and he says, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. In the end of verse 66, he is deserving of death. They knew that when Jesus said he was the Son of God, and he's at the right hand of the Father, that he is claiming to be God. So not only does that talk about he is human and God, it also is saying, look, 
the Trinity. Okay, do you see these clues? Do you see these hints? Jesus is God, and yet different from God. Okay. <clears throat> Let's turn then to Acts chapter 2. And we've looked at this passage a couple times now. Here are Peter's words at Pentecost. And of course he quotes from Psalm 110, verses 34 and 35. Let me again read verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, as I've said already, do you see he is Lord and Christ. He is God and man. But notice, it says God made this Jesus God, Lord. Do you see the idea of the Trinity there? And now we're not including the Spirit yet, but nevertheless, you see the Father and the Son. Let's turn back now to Matthew again, this time chapter 16. And again, the words of Peter. In Matthew 16, at Caesarea Philippi, you see there in verse 13, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, right, the son of David, Messiah, the son of the living God. You are God. So if he is God, God's son, then he's different from God the Father, right? Do you see the implications here? We see the ideas hinted at, again, for the Trinity, and more clearly so, of course, in the New Testament now. Let's turn to one more place, and that's Philippians chapter 2. Philippians and chapter 2, a familiar passage here for us, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You see the implication. He is equal with God. And God doesn't have a form, right? So to be in the form of God means to have the nature of God. Jesus is God. And he's equal with God. They're different. You see, you see this idea of the Trinity. Verse 7, <clears throat> but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here he takes on human nature and a human form because, of course, we have a form. God does not, but we as humans do. So verse 9, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those of heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if he is Lord, God, right, he's different from the Father. Again, you see the idea of the Trinity Again, we don't have the spirit mentioned here, but nevertheless, we see these ideas. <clears throat> Psalm 110 is hinted at this in verse 5. Okay. 
even back in verse 1, <laughs> but even more so in verse 5. The Lord is in front of God's right hand. They're different, the Father and the Son. Okay. <clears throat> now, how do we wrap our mind around this? Well, again, we have to let the scriptures lead us. Clearly, the scripture says there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we see two persons here, the Father and the Son. And of course, we also mention the Spirit. And so when we speak of the Trinity, we are speaking of three persons, but united together as one God. They are all fully God. We're not talking about the, the Father being part God and Jesus being part God and the Spirit being the rest or something like that. We're not talking about some of them having some attributes and another one having different attributes or whatever. They all have all the attributes. But they do have some different functions and roles, especially in regard to the Son and the Spirit. Um, again, you see why this is so challenging. But nevertheless... It is a call for us to believe, to accept. We as Christians must accept that Jesus is God and that he and the Father are God, but not two gods. Three and one, when you include the Spirit. And so this is not a blind faith, but it does take faith. We need to trust that the scripture is leading us in the right direction here, even when we cannot fully comprehend Okay. So again, <clears throat> back to Psalm 110, that first line in verse 5 is giving us a clue in regard to the Trinity. Yes, in verse 1, when we see ultimately my master refers to Christ, but especially even initially in verse 5. All right. <clears throat> uh, again, I can say so much. And I have talked about the Trinity at other times. And so uh, call your attention back to those things. But um, let's keep going now. And let's now talk about this preposition. You see in verse 1, you sit at my right hand. And now it says the Lord is in front of your right hand. Or uh, You see that difference there. In verse 1, the emphasis is on position. Who Jesus is. Now that's here in verse 5 too, but it does seem to emphasize more what Jesus does. He is in front of the Father, emphasizing what he's going to do, and we'll see that in the rest of verse 5 down through verse 7. And so if verse 1 is emphasizing his position, his person, now this one is emphasizing what he does. But note the close connection with the Father and the Son, with Yahweh and with Adonai here. Okay. Let's turn to Psalm 2 in a moment. <clears throat> As I've said, the connections with Psalm 2 are many. And let me read again these words. In Psalm 2, verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Obviously, the king and God are different. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay. If he's the son of God, ultimately he's got to be God. Yes, there's an initial fulfillment in David, 
but ultimately this is referring to Christ. So then verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So as you come back to Psalm 110, what we just read there in verse 9 especially is now spelled out for us with the same basic idea here in the rest of verse 5 down through verse 7. So, we have Adonai ultimately referring to Christ. He is in front of the Father, and here's what he's going to do. Does this cover everything? No. But as we put all the psalm together, we see the ideas of ruling and the ideas of priesthood. Okay? And we expanded on that some here in the last few weeks. But notice what's given to us here in the rest of the psalm. We have six things that the Lord will do. He has shattered in the day of his anger kings. He will judge among the nations. He has filled with bodies. With makes sense to assume there. He has shattered a head upon a great land. And notice verse 5 and verse 6. Same verb there, shatter. From a wadi on the road he will drink. Therefore he will lift up a head. Six things that he, note, has done and will do. Now, if you look at the New King James, for example, puts all these verbs in the future, something he shall do. But the Hebrew actually gives half of them as something that's already been done. Has shattered, has filled, has shattered again. And three of them that are in the future. He will judge, verse 6. And then verse 7, he will drink, he will lift up. Um, uh, most of the commentators say that we should take this to mean that it's referring basically to all of time, past, present, and future. And uh, I would agree with that. I don't think we need to stress too much on the past and the future here, but it's referring to basically all of time, you could say. And so maybe we could talk then about immediate fulfillment and look for greater future fulfillment. Okay, so now is or was and then will be. Um, but I, I'm not sure that we should press the, the time element of this too much. But that said, <clears throat> I think we do see some initial fulfillment in Solomon. I would agree with those who would say that. Solomon shattered kings in his anger. <clears throat> now, remember what we saw in 1 Kings chapters 1 to 4, and especially in, in uh, chapters 1 and 2. Okay. <clears throat> Remember that David gave Solomon direction to kill Joab, Adonijah, or Joab and Shimei, and then he also killed Adonijah. <coughs> now those aren't kings per se, but he did shatter them. He did fill the earth with their bodies as judgment. But more to the point, remember we saw in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon reigned from the river Euphrates all the way down to Egypt. This is even more than David did. Some try to apply these words to David, and I can understand why. <clears throat> but not even David had the nation of Israel that large. It was Solomon who did. And so Solomon <coughs> excuse me, did shatter kings all the way up to the Euphrates, all the way down to Egypt. The promised land was a great land, and he shattered many heads there, actually. He filled the nations 
with these dead bodies. <coughs> Excuse me. We also see how Solomon uh, judged with wisdom. The two most famous stories in this way, of course, you think of the two women who said the baby was theirs. And Solomon said, okay, kill the baby. Cut it in half. And the real mother was discovered. The other one, of course, is when the queen of Sheba came. The nations came, you could say, to hear his judgment and his wisdom. And so we see some fulfillment in that way. And then in verse 7, it says about drinking from a wadi on the road. What does this mean? Well, most people go in this direction. You remember when Solomon uh, was to ride on David's donkey? There we read in 1 Kings 1. And he was to come into Jerusalem saying that he is going to be king. You remember where he started? Hey, you go back and read it if you don't. <clears throat> but simply, he was supposed to start at the Gihon Spring. <clears throat> now, the Gihon Spring is rather unique. It's not a wadi per se, but the water does kind of come and go in a certain sense. And remember, wadis are dry in the dry season, but full of water in the wet season. So uh, it, it may fit. And what we understand <clears throat> is that when each subsequent king was coronated, that they actually took a drink from the Gihon Spring, and they connected here to Psalm 110. So that's, that's probably our initial understanding. But as he drinks, <clears throat> that means that he is refreshed, he is strengthened, and therefore he will lift up a head. He will bring blessing, he will bring refreshment. And certainly that was true with Solomon, and we read some of that in 1 Kings. He lifted up many heads through his wisdom, through his justice, through his wealth, so much wealth that even gold was, was, you know, like candy, so to speak, we would say. And, of course, we see the peace that he brought. But it didn't stay, of course. He was corrupted by his many wives, and he did some sinful things. And no king ever attained to this position that Solomon had. And so, though there may be some initial fulfillment here in Solomon... We're looking for more. And by the time you get to the time after the exile, they are clearly looking forward to the Messiah. So when Jesus came, one of the key things that he taught to us is that the day of the Lord had come. Even John the Baptist said this, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus said the same things. But Jesus then expanded on that and said, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the day of the Lord has come, but it's going to be two events. There's the first coming and the second coming. I am going to leave, and I will return later. At his first coming, we can see, excuse me, this warrior king, this God, this Lord, shattering. In his first coming, he shattered especially the head of King Satan, you might say, the king of evil. Now, this is not the same word as Genesis 3.15. That's the word crush. But it has the same idea. Jesus came to crush the serpent's head, to shatter his head in his anger, and to uh, spread him on the land, you might say. Let's turn a moment to Hebrews Again, but this time chapter 2, 
And we could look at actually several different passages here to this, to this idea. And in Hebrews 2, note especially verses 14 and 15. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Right? He became human. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. So Jesus had to become a man to do this. And as a man, he had to die. And in his death, Satan died. <laughs> and we're released. It doesn't seem to make sense. But when we understand the work of the priesthood, it does make sense. Because the wages of sin is death. And through the death of of Christ through his atoning death, we are set free. Our sins are paid for, and, and Satan is conquered. And so Jesus came, and really the whole process is this. He lived a life of perfection, conquering sin, shattering sin by being perfect. Okay? Jesus, of course, then conquered death. First, by giving up his spirit on the cross, before death could take him, and then, of course, very clearly in the resurrection. And through these things, then, Jesus shattered the head of the serpent. He conquered Satan. And then, of course, he ascended into heaven. He sits at God's right hand. We see him conquering. We see him shattering all principalities and powers in this way. And this is at his first coming. The work is completed in the sense that it is a done deal. It's accomplished. It's finished in this way. And in so doing, Jesus, of course, brought refreshment. He brought the water to his people, you might say, the water referring to the spirit. Think of Ezekiel 47 and John 7 and Revelation 22. And Jesus then, of course, has lifted up our head. He has lifted up our heads in salvation he lifts up our heads daily in sanctification. But verse 7 here in Psalm 110 does say he will drink. Not that he will provide a drink for us, though that is the implication of the next line. But uh, he will drink. He will find refreshment. When did Jesus find refreshment? Okay. Think of the times that he went to pray to his father. Think of even at his baptism when the spirit, the water, as it were, here in the form of a dove, came upon him. Think of the transfiguration and, and so forth. And then even lastly in the Garden of Gethsemane, he found refreshment as he prayed to his father. And because of that refreshment, he was able to atone for our sins within a matter of hours and then rise from the dead and lift every one of our heads up in salvation. And so Christ's victory is complete on the cross and in the empty tomb. Now the implementation of that victory takes place over time. So back to our, our verbs in the, the time reference. He has shattered, he has done this. It is being implemented now. And it will be in its, all of its fullness when he returns. And so the spread of the gospel now is taking place. The expansion of the kingdom now is taking place. 
But someday, the day of the Lord will come to its full fulfillment when Jesus returns. So let's now turn to Revelation and chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and beginning in verse 11. It says this, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He shatters, you could say. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Remember the volunteers we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, Verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So Psalm 2, verse 9, this idea of shattering. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? Adonai. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Now that just seems really weird, doesn't it? But Psalm 110, verse 6, he's filled the earth with bodies. Okay? He's shattered on this great land. Here the whole world. And so now the birds can come and eat, devour, feast. So verse 19 then. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Right? That's the beast of the sea. Right? The false state. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The false prophet is the beast of the land, right? The false church. And then um, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now this is not a quotation of Psalm 110, but it clearly is alluding to it. And so you see this connection. Christ has come. His work is finished, you might say, on the cross. The day of the Lord has begun, but he's going to come back and finish what he started. The fullness of his work will be accomplished. And we'll see it in this way as this warrior shattering kings in his anger through the word of his power. And then let's turn to chapter 22. Beginning in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So note, we have the Father mentioned God, we have the Son mentioned the Lamb, and we have the Spirit mentioned. And that's in the image of this water. 
So again, Ezekiel 47, John 7, among other passages, this is referring to the Spirit. So you see the Trinity here, just like you see in Genesis 1, a hint at the Trinity. In the middle of his street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Do you see how he's lifting up the head, you might say? That this water is bringing refreshment. Verse 3, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Remember the volunteers idea. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Again, there are so many things that we could connect here, but do you see that our priest king is enthroned in heaven, ruling over all things. At the end, he will come and conquer the world in all of its fullness. His volunteers will come with him in this process, and then we all will be lifted up to heaven for our eternal refreshment, the eternal lifting of the head. And it's all because Jesus is God, the Son of God, our, pro- our priest, our king, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit work together to make this happen. This is an encouragement for us now. This is an encouragement for us someday when he comes back. Once again, I'm just barely touching on any of these things. But hopefully I've given you enough dots here in Psalm 110 that you can connect those dots. And you can see how it is found in other parts of the scriptures. I've led you down that path, but there is more to see. And in the end, for all the complexity of this psalm, for all of the challenges for our interpretation, the point is very straightforward. This is ultimately a prophecy of Christ, who he is and what he has done. He and he alone is our only hope for salvation because he is God and man. He is priest and king. And because of these things, we have eternal life through our God. And so here then are a few thoughts. And I do emphasize few, even though they've been many in certain ways. So Lord uh, willing, next time we will turn to Psalm 111 and note the fitting response. Lots of hallelujahs. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. And and though sometimes your word is challenging for us, we are thankful that you do lead us at least to the main points, even though we may still struggle over some of the particulars. And we do thank you, Lord, that Psalm 110 does give us this, this understanding of Christ and of you. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have sent forth your Son as a man, as your Son, the God-man. And we are thankful, Lord, that he has come to shatter, to conquer, to destroy that which is evil, and therefore to provide that lifting of the head, that refreshment, that salvation for now and for all eternity.
We are thankful, our Lord Jesus, and praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done. We praise you for what you are doing. And we pray that by your spirit you continue to, to work in us, that you would develop our minds and our understanding that we might believe. But may it also then um, impact how we live from day to day, resting in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you again and praise you. And we pray then in Jesus' name. Amen.